I'm glad I'm married to her. So we're in Romans chapter 12 this morning. Let me read the first few verses. We're going to camp out on verse number one. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so, Father, we don't even want to open your word without first coming before you and humbly asking you to give us understanding and enlightening your word so that we might know truth, that our, even our, our spirits and our hearts might be enlivened to comply with and follow and, and, and embrace, and, and even as, as David says, to delight in your word. It is sweet. It is precious. It is honey. Lord, may we feast on it this day in Christ's name. Amen. So tonight at the stroke of midnight, actually before that, at 11.59 tonight in New York City, a six-ton crystal ball is going to begin a one-minute descent, and when it hits the bottom and re reaches the bottom, right at the stroke of midnight, supposedly it's going to begin a new year. This ball, this crystal ball, really uh, beautifully marks a transition in the calendar. Once it hits the bottom and you got a new year, 2024, 23 is in the past. We're now looking at 2024, and we're living it out. It's, uh, I thought that by providence, it's kind of an interesting illustration to use for the opening of, of chapter 12 of the book of Romans. Because we find ourselves, we don't have a crystal ball there in verse 1, but what we do have is a word, a word that acts like a crystal ball. And if you look down at your scriptures, and you look at, at the first verse, the word is the word, therefore. In some, some translations at the beginning, some translations it's two or three words in, but it's a key word, it's therefore. Because what therefore is therefore is that it, it, it marks a demarcation. A change is about to take place. We finished with something in, in the past, chapter 1 through 11, and now we're moving on to the future. We're looking at the rest of the book of Romans, chapter 12 through 16. God has been unfolding before our hearts and before our eyes the first 11 chapters, which have been glorious, glorious truths about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and uh, some of you have been, been here since the beginning. You know, ever since we first opened the book of Romans, I had to go back on Sermon Audio and see what date that was, because it was so long ago I forgot. And I found out that, uh, I don't know if you were here on that this day, but, but as we go back, it was back to, uh, oh, let's see if I can find it here. Uh, it's two and a half years ago, almost, almost to the month, two and a half years ago, we opened up the book of Romans. And Paul said at the very beginning, I, I declare to you, I want to preach to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's been doing for us all the way for 11 chapters in over two and a half years period. 
So as we come to therefore, I want you to see it as a line of demarcation, kind of a separation, a change from the first 11 and, and now going into starting today, the, the, the 12, 13, 14, 15, 15, the last five. The first, the first 11 chapters focused on what? Theology, right? Who God is, who we are, what God has done, how glorious He is. This focused on the theology of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as we come to chapter 12, the therefore is going to separate. And, and there's going to be more, more of the glories of the, of the gospel, but we're also going to see God's beginning to exhort us on how to live the Christian life in light of everything He's told us about what He's done for us in Christ. God has saved us to live a holy life. Just, yeah, our sins are forgiven, but we're also been saved to live a Christ-like life. And here's the question I want us to think about as we come to 2024, we come to chapter 12. How do we do that? You know, I, I think it's fa fair to say that most of us came today with a heart of wanting to serve and love God. The question we're going to be asking ourselves how do we motivate ourselves to do that? How, how do we do it? It's not that we don't know what to do, but how do we do it? How does God want us to do it? Now, one of the things this chapter does, this first verse does, is correct two errors that I want to talk about this morning from this chapter. Uh, the first error is this. We go to the left side of the therefore. And we go to the first 11 chapters of the book of, of Romans, and we say that's the exclusive way to live a sanctified, holy life. In other words, the way to live holiness, the way to be Christ-like, is, is to know deeply all that God has done in His mercies for us by saving our souls. So what we have is that when, then when those who hold to a view like that, we say we really don't have to have the rest of the, the book, the 11 through 16, what we need to have is the gospel. And if we preach the gospel to ourselves, we will become holy people. Uh, this is a view that uh, really, I think, comes from a fear of conflating the law and the gospel. And here, here, here's my response. Yes, the Bible is filled. The Bible is filled with many indicatives. Well, what's an indicative? I'm going to use that term during the sermon. Anyone know what indicative? Raise your hand if you know what indicative. Okay, well, indicatives are all the teachings. All, all the teachings of, of, of God, about the gospel, about God, about us. All the spiritual truths that are taught to us in Scripture. Especially those that embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we teach to ourselves and preach to ourselves the indicatives... We don't really need the imperatives because the imperatives, they're there, they're helpful, but by knowing the gospel, that's sufficient to bring us to holiness. So we're justified by faith, and, and, and therefore we know the depths of God's truth. And so when we come to a word like therefore in chapter 12, verse 1, it, it should remind us, it should trigger, okay, we've, we've, we've had 11 chapters of indicatives about what God has done and who we are. Now we're going to start with the rest of the book of Romans, bringing us examples of imperatives, commands, and the way that we should live uprightly before Him. Now, 
Now, the danger of, of removing the imperatives, the commands, and, 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 and majoring on the indicatives is it has the potential of leading the Christian life into antinomianism, into lawlessness, and into sin. That's why the therefore is therefore. That takes us to the second error. And the second error is to say, okay, everything to the right of the therefore, chapters 11 through 16, is what I must do as a do list to begin to live like Christ. And so it picks up all, all, all the imperatives. What's the imperatives? All the things that God commands, all the duty that he requires in the word of God, all the imperative and saying, I don't need the, I really don't need the indicatives. I don't need chapter 1 through 11. What I need is, just give me a list of what I need to do. How should I live? I'm going to start living that way. Well, the problem with that is that you have no, no motivation to do what's right with God. And you might not even have the spirit to do what's right with God. And, and, and you're doing it really out of sheer work of the flesh to try and live a holy life. Oftentimes it leads to those who slavishly try and, and do what God desires. And they're doing it in their own strength and their own abilities. So the correction comes to us. And I think this why I'm going to stop at verse 1 today. The correction comes to us with this one word, therefore, in, in chapter 12, verse 1, which connects and brings together two parts of this book and why we need both of them to live a holy life before God. There's danger in pursuing uh, 12 through 16, all, all, all of the laws and demands at the exclusion of chapter 1 through 11, all the things that God has done. This leads us to the pursuit of holiness by trying to keep it ourselves. Uh, therefore, if you're to live a holy life, here, here, here's the message in a nutshell, we need both. We need, the, we need the indicatives, we need to know what God has done, and we need the imperatives, we know what God wants us to do. And the two wonderfully come together and corrects us in this verse. I think the therefore alerts us to the right balance towards holiness and the right balance towards sanctification. If you're to lead a life of holiness, both sections are essential in your Christian life. God brings holiness through a proper understanding and application of chapters 1 through 11, and, and also a proper understanding and application of chapters 12 through 16. And putting it in theological terms, if you're to grow in holiness, if you're going to grow in your sanctification and Christ-likeness, a proper balance needs to be understood in the Christian's heart and life between the imperatives and the indicatives. And those two balance out and lead to a balanced walk in the area of holiness. This balance should be understood whenever you read Scripture. And when you think of Scripture, I mean, some of us are more prone to law. And we see duty and we just jump on it. Others are, are really maybe more the theological and then they're, they're really driven to all, all the indicatives of Scripture and all the wonder that's there. And so what we have to, in our own hearts, pull together you know, our own bent and bring it into line with Scripture is how it should be. I mean, real, real Scripture, knowing that God, God's likeness does not come by just reading the gospel alone over and over again, that doesn't bring holiness. Neither does it 
require us to open up the Bible like a, a law list of do's and don'ts. And if we don't do them, you know, we're just trying to keep it and slavishly try and be obedient to God and neglecting the indicatives of Scripture. It really comes from a heartfelt understanding. It has to begin here. We're going to see this. I'm going to focus on this this morning of really knowing God first, really understanding all that he's done. Just the wonder of salvation. We're going to see the wonder of his mercy in our life. This pattern is very common with Paul. We, we see he first teaches the, the indicatives, and then he follows it up with imperatives. That, that's his pattern of teaching. He realizes both are essential. For example, you got Ephesians 1 through 3. You know, you've got what? Theology. Seated in the heavenly places. All the blessings that are ours in Christ. And he talks about all the wonders of knowing God and what he's done in our life. And then, chapter 4, he's, then therefore, this is how you're to live in light of what I've done in your heart. And he's doing the same thing here in Romans. Chapters 1 through 11, the doctrine of salvation. And then we see then the therefore creeps in here and, and divides at uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Now from this point on, how we walk in righteousness. This is the balance that I seek to maintain in my preaching, and this is the balance that I seek to maintain in my teaching as well. And I think this is important because every one of us, as I just said, we're wired a certain way. And uh, I, I find it when I'm preparing a sermon, pressure to go one way or the other because of my own heart, my own, my own slant in life. I mean, if you're, if you're more geared toward uh, a list of do's and don'ts, say, God, just tell me what to do and I'll go do it. Then you probably teach and preach that way as well. By the way, church, here, here's a list. Go do it. Or if you're really tied up in, in theology and you're less wired towards application, you're more, more likely to teach the, the indicatives of Scripture or preach the indicatives, and you almost have to force yourself to, to bring in the application. Well, the, preach the gospel of grace and the wonders of Christ, that all sinners are saved by grace through faith alone. I, I was blessed this last week to read comments from Herman uh, Ritterboss, a famous Dutch theologian on this subject. And it was just, it, it reminded me of this balance, because he understood this balance very well. He says, every imperative, that's every command, uh, who we are, I'm, yeah, every, every imperative, chapter 12 through 16, every rule, every command must rest on indicatives. The two must go hand in hand. In other words, must rest on chapters 1 through 11, who we are, who God is, and what he's done. And the order is not reversible. Paul never starts off with chapters 12 through 16 and then brings us all the, the indicatives at the very end of his books. One has to precede the other. Uh, this human instinct, in which we all have, our default inclination, a condition that is true of every non-Christian religion, reverses the order, teaching that we are to what we are to be to God first, and then, by the way, this is what you must believe. And the two have to go the other way. Thus, any preaching or teaching that is distinctly Christian must, be, must keep the listeners from confusing or inverting our who and our do. 
if it includes the imperatives, the sermon lesson without application is mere abstraction. Every sermon, teaching, preaching should include a duty that comes from the passage. And then he concludes this. He says, a sermon or Bible lesson isn't a Christian sermon if its ethical imperatives eclipse its gospel indicatives. If you can follow that. I think really wise, a wise observation by, by Bavnik, um, not Bavnik, by Ritterboss. So what I want to do this morning is open up verse 1. It's kind of an introduction. And it's a familiar passage. Many of you might have committed it to uh, memory. But I don't know how many of you who have committed to memory have also really mined the depth of this one verse and how important it is in our Christian life. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which, your, which is your spiritual worship. And notice that this verse opens, this section of Scripture opens with Paul's appeal. He simply says, I appeal to you. Literally, I beseech you. You have different translations, I know. Uh, I entreat you. I invite you. I earnestly appeal to you. I think the uh, NASB uh, Shriner, also in his commentaries, uses the word urge you. I urge you. I think that's a good word. It's interesting that Paul does not say, I command you. And I wondered, why is that? I command you, brothers, live this way. He doesn't do that. But I urge you to consider these words. Because the gospel is not believe plus obey. The gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And God will change your life and you will obey. But it's not, it's not a condition of salvation in any way. And so he's saying, I realize you're justified by faith. You're Christians. And therefore now I'm urging you in light of who you are, to live this way. The gospel isn't believe plus obey. Notice that he's speaking to brothers here. He's, he's speaking to Christians, uh, fellow believers in Rome who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's treating them like Christians. Now in light of all that God has done, and he's told them about that in the first 11 chapters, he's now urging them to live according to godliness and to live a holy life. A true faith that, that leads to the fruit of obedience in your life. You see a similar balance Paul brings in Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it. Do it. But what? For it's God who works in you. You're saved. And he's, your spirit's in you. And he's giving you the will and the power to do what I urge you to do. So here's our question. If we're not saved by obedience, and we're not, right? We're not sure. We're not saved by obedience, right? Right. right. Well, obedience to the gospel. I guess that. Maybe you were thinking that. You were spiritually way ahead of me. So if you're not saved by obedience, if you're not saved by law-keeping, what is the Christian motivation for you to live a godlike, holy life in 2024? 
And again, when you came through those doors, I believe most of you who are in faith in Christ, if you took out a piece of paper and a pencil and a pen, you could write down, you know what God wants you to do. Most of you know that. You, you, you realize, you know, yeah, the nuances and there's other things you could add. You know the sins that are in your life as Christians. And you've been battling those sins knowing that that's disobedience to the law of God. And so maybe you came in the door this morning not thinking, well, what other things can I heap upon myself that I must do? The, the question is, how can I be motivated, especially in the face of a new year, to live that way? To live a life that's pleasing to God. And he answers that for us. And if nothing else, remember this for, the, for this next year coming up. It's by the mercies of God. That's our motivation for living a holy life. Literally, it'd be more like because of the mercies of God. Calvin words it this way. He says, men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey without a sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy. And that's the part we need. I think that's the part we need for the motivation is to realize all the mercy that God has poured out on us and will continue to pour out on us for all eternity. To be that motivator. So I must live a life that's pleasing to him. There's no other choice. Hopefully you see what Paul's saying there. When we come to the word therefore, it's connecting everything before. As I said, chapters 1 through 11. And, uh, and plus, the therefore adds everything that follows and connects the two together. Now, those of you who are here back in uh, May 16th, 2021, that's the date we started this study. Uh, don't answer, don't raise your hand, but how many of you can actually remember the mercies that we, we enumerated for the last two and a half years? You know, if you took out a pencil and paper and you said, oh, that's okay. Chapter one, chapter two. What are the many mercies that God has bestowed on my life? What are they? I mean, how many could you list? I mean, you start, for example, in chapter one, you go through 320, and there you see the, the sinfulness of man, the condemnation of mankind, because sin is total and it's universal. And we're all doomed. That's what you see in the opening chapters. And even then you see the, the mercy of God in, in providing uh, common grace to sinners like you and me. I mean, well, we didn't deserve it. He was still being very, very kind to us as a heavenly father. And then 321 through 511, we came to the doctrine of faith, justification by faith, and what Christ has done on our behalf, and how the, our sins are forgiven because of the blood of Christ, and we're clothed in his righteousness. All those mercies are added here. We're united with Christ for life. And then 5, uh, 12 through, 18, uh, through 8, we, we see we're, we're united, we're sanctified, joined to Christ. And then recently we started going to the big question, what about the Jews? You know, if they're not, if they're not saved, what, what about them? Will they ever be saved? What about your promises? And we saw the sovereignty of God in chapter 9, doctrine of election. I mean, we saw 11 chapters of mercies cascading, overflowing us over and over and over again. So we closed chapter 11. 
We saw his kindness. We saw his patience. We saw his love. We saw his grace. We saw his power. We saw his sovereignty, his omnipotence. We saw that he justified us by faith, not on anything that we've done ourselves. And we know that we're forgiven, and we know we have everlasting life. We know the Spirit of God lives in us. What else could God have done? And he took that heart of stone that I had before I was a Christian, he plucked it out and put it in a heart of flesh. And his mercies don't stop as of today. They extend into 2024. His mercies extend into eternity. You're never going to stop receiving the mercies of God. And what Paul is saying here is such wonderful mercies should bring nothing, should bring us nothing short of a complete surrender and sacrifice of ourselves to God. That's the argument he's going to make. And that's why he takes us into the sacrifice. Paul saying, in light of the overwhelming delight and all the mercies of God you have, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You know, we're kind of drawing from the imagery of the Old Testament and, and the sacrificial system that was set up under the Old Covenant. You know, they would take an animal, put it on an altar of meat, consume it by fire. You see a picture of that even with a person, with uh, Abraham and his son. In Genesis 22.9, when they came, here he is with Isaac, they came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order to bound up Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son and to consume him by fire. Graphic, graphic display of a human sacrifice, of the father offering his son to the commands of God. Here we're not called to offer Isaac to the altar. This is a call to offer your life in Christ on the altar of God. It's, uh, what does he mean our body? Put your, you know, to, you're, you're called by God to offer up or present your body as a living sacrifice. Well, how do I do that? Well, by your body, I think he's talking about your whole being. Not just your flesh and your bones. I think he's talking about your whole being. And, and uh, present it. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And so offer up to God every thought, every word, every intent of your life, every deed. Offer it up to God, your hands, your feet, your eyes. We've seen that before, that imagery. It's all God's. Use it for God's glory. Now, just a note here, when, when he says, present your body, this is found in the aorist tense, which is kind of confusing in a way. Because, you know, if you've been with us for a while, you know the aorist is kind of a, a point in time in action. Something happens once and once and for all, generally. You know, if we saw the accident on the corner, you know, they crashed. Well, aorist, you know, they're not going to keep crashing over and over again. It was a one-time crash, and it's out there in the street. But here he uses the heiress to say, present your body as a living sacrifice. 
Lay down your life on the altar once and for all. Lay down your life and present it once and for all to God. And so I, I see what I see there is, is a one-time commitment of our heart, a resolve of our heart to live a Christ-like life. Uh, not a picture of, you know, sometimes you hear this preached and, well, you're on the altar, you're off the altar. Now get back on the altar and now you're off the altar again. You're on and off the altar and you're, on, you're, on, you're sacrificing yourself over and over and over again. I, I, I don't see that in this passage. Perhaps it happens when you come to faith in Christ. There's a resolve of your heart at that point that my heart is to God. It's to live for God. It's to do what God wants. My heart is being laid down at that point on the altar of God. It's not a picture of waking up tomorrow morning and saying, okay, it's 2024, I better get up on the altar. Then Friday comes along, oh man, I'm tired of being on that altar. That's a drudgery. And I'm off the altar now, and I'm going to wait until God convicts me to come back on the altar. That's not what, what Paul is saying here at all. Also, it does not mean that once you're on the altar, you're perfectly sanctified, you're perfectly holy, and, and from that point on, you're just totally Christ-like. doesn't mean that as well. I think we can add to our meaning a little bit by looking and taking a peek at, at verse 2 in chapter 1, where we see this. He goes on to say, And so don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And even though it has both of these verbs have ED after them, they're both in the present tense. And so here you are offering up your life once and for all, putting it on, on the altar. And yet your life is not like, okay, it's over with. But daily, you're to be continually not being conformed to this world. We're going to see about more about that next time. You're to continually being transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's an ongoing command of God as you are on the altar of God. Well, it could mean that Paul is telling believers to once and for all present your whole body, a sacrifice that remains on the altar, and a sacrifice that is continually being conformed and a continually being transformed by the Word of God. So let's look at the characteristics of this body we're to lay on, on, on this altar. Um, he gives three characteristics of it. He says it's a living sacrifice. Well, that's interesting. It's a living sacrifice. Contrast that with the Old Covenant. What kind of sacrifice was on the, on, the, on the altar then? Well, if you wanted to offer an offering in those days, you'd go to the, to the stock market or wherever you get your, your, your animal, take it to the temple. Just on the north side of the altar in the temple, that animal then would be slain, would be executed. The blood would be taken and sprinkled on the four corners of, of the altar. Uh, the, the, the carcass would be divided up properly according to Scripture. Uh, that which is being offered up, the meat would be dead, put on the altar, and it'd be consumed by the fire, and the aroma that went up to God hopefully would be a sweet-smelling aroma and pleasing to Him. That's the imagery. But here he says, no, 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 this is the new covenant. Offer up a, a living sacrifice, not, not, not a dead sacrifice. Well, we're talking about yourself. Put yourself on the altar. Um, what does that mean? A living sacrifice. Well, we're alive. I guess we could say, yeah, living in the sense that we're alive this side of eternity. And so, yeah, living that way physically. But I believe more pointedly, he's talking about being spiritually alive. 
We're a living sacrifice. God has done a work of grace in our heart, and we're, we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but now we are alive in Christ. So spiritually, we're alive in Christ. Put that person on the altar. Romans 6.11 says, So also must you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, for present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. And so we're living, we're, we're yes, physically alive, but we're spiritually alive because of the salvation that God has brought us. And, and that living, heart-changed sacrifice is being put on the altar to God. And that's why you could call it a holy sacrifice as well. Not only are we spiritually alive, but we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And He sees us and responds to us because we are holy as His Son is holy. And so it, 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 we're to offer up an undefiled sacrifice. And that kind of sacrifice, He says, is acceptable to God. It goes up into a sweet-smelling fragrance to God, and He is pleased. Now... Paul describes this offering up of a sacrifice in, in, in various ways, depending on your translation. But, but uh, mine says spiritual worship, offering yourself up as a sacrifice, which, you're, which is your spiritual worship. Now, what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you, if you got an ESV, it says spiritual worship, right? If you have a King James Version, it says reasonable service. If you have an NASB or an NIV, it says spiritual service of worship. So you see, you almost like you're moving the, moving the shells around here in different orders, but, uh, but saying similar, very similar things. What does it mean? Spiritual worship or reasonable worship? Well... The word spiritual is translated here in the, in the ESV. Uh, it has its root word in the original. It would be a, a word that if we were saying it in, in, in Greek, you, you would hear it say, oh, that's the word logical. I understand that. That's logical. And so you see that. And it's translated that way, way as reasonable, logical, of course, that kind of idea. Rational which is your rational service. And the idea is that uh, in light of all the mercies of God, thinking all that God has done for me in chapters 1 through 11 and even everything else that's defined in Scripture, I am so overwhelmed by His mercies. Wouldn't it be logical? Isn't it reasonable? I mean, isn't it a no-brainer that I would lay down my life as a sacrifice for Him? That's my reasonable worship. And why would I hold back? Why wouldn't I give him my everything? I mean, look what he's done. And look at who he is. And then the word service. Is it service or worship? Well, you know, we use those two words interchangeably. I mean, sometimes I'll say, you know, what's the order of service for today? Well, or what is the order of worship for today? You know, what time are your services at Redeeming Grace Church? We, what time is worship at Redeeming Grace Church? The, the, we, we use the words interchangeably, and so we see it's being used that way here. The emphasis on worship. 
It's yielding your whole body to God. Every part of your being. It's only it's your reasonable, logical worship of God. How can you do anything else? Rational way to live as believers. And by the way, the failure to do so would be absolute folly to think you'd want to live any other way if you truly appreciate all that God has done for you. So let me review. I've, we've been looking at all the bits and pieces of this one verse. But let, let's review it, and, and let me give you a paraphrase and see if this, this resonates in your heart. It's like Paul is saying this. I appeal to you earnestly, brothers and sisters. Consider with me all the wonderful things that God has done. And think how wonderful He is and who you are in light of what He's done. All the mercies of chapter 1 through 11. Think of His eternal love. and it loved you before the foundation of the world. Ponder that. Think of His condescension of coming down from heaven in the form of a babe, in the form of a man, for, for, for a life of suffering here on earth, only to end at the cross. And every one of His people was in mind. Everyone that He came to save, He, he, he knew personally and loved. And then think of the substitutionary death and the suffering and the wrath of God that was poured out on the Son. And all that was done on behalf of those He came to save because He loved them. He was a merciful God. And think of the new life you have in Christ and how your life has changed and how your sins are forgiven. Think about eternity that lies ahead and the heavenly bliss of being in the presence of God. Oh, the glorification, the eternal home. And now in light of that, he says, present your life. Present your being. Present everything about yourself as one who's spiritually alive and, and one who's been practically made holy as well as spiritually made holy. Therefore, you're now acceptable to God. Isn't that logical? He's saying, isn't that a logical thing to do? Why would you want to do anything else? You hear his argument. Is there any other reason for worshiping God other than the fact that who He is and what He's done? It's like He's saying, well, what holds you back? You will never live the Christian life by trying to do it in your flesh, eking out every day, trying to be, trying to stop, trying to do, trying to go, try, you know, try to be the perfect husband in your, on your own abilities. You'll never have the motive, the power, or the ability to do it. But you will as you consider the mercies of God and who God is and who you are in light of Him. There's a need for us to know the gospel more. Uh, and it's right here in the text. We need to know the mercies of God. In 2024, we need to grow in our knowledge, our appreciation, our, our, our realization of all that God is and all that He's done. We need to mine the depths of Scripture for that. Um, I know that uh, many of us uh, would say uh, that means reading the Bible. Yeah. Maybe some of you are thinking, well, 
I did go online and I found a read the Bible through in a one year deal. And I'm going to do three chapters a week. And by Mary faithfully, she says, Don, I'm only what two chapters away from finishing Revelation. You, you make it all the way through the Bible. That's good. I don't want to discourage anyone from doing that. But here's what I want to say. That is not mining the depths of the mercies of God and the word of God. It's going to take more than that on your part. If you're going to really know who God is, be over flooded with who he is and live in such a way in conformance with that. You must know God. John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life, that they know you. John 14, 17, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because neither is seen, sees him nor knows him. But you know him. In 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and in the day of eternity. Amen. It comes from the knowledge of God. If you're regenerate, the, the more you see and the more that you're drawn by the wonder of God, the more your heart pants after holiness and being conformed to the image of Christ the more you'll be motivated to follow him. And there's no shortcut to this. I mean, there's nothing short of just plowing, saying, open up your Bible and just say, ah, God, show me yourself. I want, to know, I want to know you. I want to know what you've done. I want to understand you in greater depth. Well, maybe I'll read a book on the theology of God. Maybe I'll read a book of Charnock, for example, exploring the depths of the attributes of God. But I don't. all I need to know is I want to know you, God, and I want to know your mercies because I realize that is the means for me to live a life that's going to be pleasing to you. Plowing and digging and discovering his mercy. I mean, the idea today that, you know, you can just live a holy life by reading over and over again the mercies of God is not, is not sufficient. You must know the mercies of God, but it doesn't stop there. That's the introduction. That's the motivation. Then comes the therefore in verse 1, and then from that flows the many duties that come to us in the rest of the book of, of Romans. So to offer our whole being to God as a living, holy sacrifice and Lord willing, pleasing to him 24-7. We're going to sing as a closing hymn uh, the Francis Havergal hymn, uh, Take My Life and Let It Be. You're familiar with that? You know, that's where the hymn writer just goes through and just, in light of all the mercies and what God has done, I just want to, I want to live for him. I want to lay down my life and, 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 and live it for, for, his, for his glory. And you'll see as we go through this in the closing hymn that he says, start, take my life, God. I'm going to lay that down. It's yours. Take my moments. Oh, they're yours too. 24-7, God. Take my hands. They're yours, God. Take my feet. They're yours, God. Take my silver, my gold, my bank account, my intellectual property. It's all yours. Take my will and take my heart. I'm offering it all to you, God. And lastly, it closes with take my love. And I was thinking that maybe he could have wrote that, written that song differently by putting that as the first verse, because that's where it begins. Being in love with God. In light of knowing who he is and all he's done in my love for him, therefore, I'm offering up everything else to you. 
you know, there's a Keith Green song that I, I really like. I hear it periodically or listen to it. But he says, I pledge my head to heaven for the gospel. Well, that's, that's a very convicting song. It's, but it's the idea of offering everything I have, God, to you. My life, my life, my, my wife, my children, but ultimately my head. I'm pledging my head to you for the gospel. One of the lines says, speaking of Christ, he's speaking of Though he's kicked and beaten, ridiculed, scorned, I will teach him to rejoice and will lift a thankful, praising voice. And to be like him who bore the nails and crown of thorns, I pledge my head to the heavens for the gospel. So as we look at this verse for walking into the next year, I pray that God would give us a heart, that we'd know Him in a way where we'd say, God, take it all. Take it all. All that I am is yours, God. Take it, whatever that means. And may you find it acceptable and pleasing to Him as a sweet-smelling savor. Let's pray. And so, Father, we thank You, Lord, for this passage, this one verse. Lord, this lead-in into a glorious chapter of how we're to walk in righteousness in the Christian life. I would pray, Father, that You would take, us, take Your Word to our hearts. Lord, stir us. Give us a hunger for, for Your Word, for righteousness. And, I, Lord, I pray that that hunger would, would unfold and just a, a loving desire, compliant desire to live, a, live for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.